Welcome to the Whitmer Cast, a podcast by the John Whitmer Historical Association. We bring you essays, interviews, panel discussions, and broadcasts related to Mormon history and restoration studies. My name is Colby, and I'm currently a PhD student in the English department at Indiana University Bloomington, studying colonial and early national American literature. I'll be your host for today's episode, and thank you for tuning in. We have a great episode lined up for you. We'll be talking to Mark Staker. If you'd like to join JWHA or visit our entire backlog of episodes and JWHA journals, go to jwha.info. With that out of the way, let's get started. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Mark Staker. He received his PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Florida and is a master curator in the historic sites division of the LDS Church History Department. He has written a wonderful book, Hearken, O Ye People, The Historical Setting of Joseph Smith's Ohio Revelations, published by Greg Coford Books. And then also this more recent book that we'll be talking about today, Joseph and Lucy Smith's Tunbridge Farm, an Archaeology and Landscape Study, which he co-authored with Donald L. Enders. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad I can talk with you today. Yeah, I'm very glad to have you here. I'm excited to talk to you about this book. But first, I'd like to, uh, to just take a little bit of time to go over your background, you know, kind of what led you up to writing this book and the previous one. But yeah, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, not at all. I uh, started out in college, very interested in archaeology, wanted to be an archaeologist. I had some very dynamic professors in cultural anthropology that directed me that way. I loved uh, everything that they taught and attended all their classes. And so I ended up uh, becoming a medical anthropologist, went on through school, got a PhD from the University of Florida, which is very strong in that area and in, in Caribbean studies. And so I went to uh, the Republic of Suriname uh, and did my field work there for a year with the uh, Nengre, the, uh, the Creole uh, population there and, and uh, had, had a research uh, uh, grant that I received and focused on them and uh, their lives. But I, at the time, I also uh, learned a lot about uh, the Hindustani, the East Indian population that lived there in Suriname and the Javanese, the Indonesian population, uh, very culturally diverse uh, peoples uh, that live there. And it gave me a real sense of kind of the worldwide setting. And so after I got out of graduate school and was looking for work, this opportunity opened up uh, at the uh, Museum of Church History and Art in Salt Lake City. And I um, I'd not really thought about that before, but they were interested in somebody dealing with 20th century international uh, Mormonism. And it just fit fit with something I was found very compelling. And so I was hired by the museum and over time kept getting lots of assignments to do 19th century subjects and earlier and eventually became a curator in the historic sites division. And uh, so I've spent uh, almost 30 years 
focusing on history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Mormonism in general uh, in various contexts, but uh, especially the early, early period. One of my colleagues, uh, Don Enders, that I worked with for a lot of years, uh, he's now retired, and he spent 60 years studying uh, the Smith family in Mm -hmm. early upstate New York. And I spent 30 years kind of following in his footsteps, uh, (laughs) building on what he'd learned, trying to uh, learn new material. And we decided to collaborate, uh, to pull together uh, our research and write a book on the Smith family in early New York. As we talked together, it became clear that to understand the family in New York, you really need to understand them in Vermont. And to understand them in Vermont, you needed to understand them in Massachusetts because each element of the story played on uh, later elements. And so we got a research grant to allow us to go out to Massachusetts where we uh, studied some of the homes there built by family members and looked carefully at the setting and and uh, continued on up to Vermont, uh, where we were able to continue that and did uh, just a couple of days of archaeology on one of the, uh, well, let me step back that there's a great uh, little article in a book called Sacred Places, where Larry Dahl, a professor at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, he's, he's a little black and white uh, image that you can't really see well, and he's kind of pointing to the ground. Uh, it says, "Here's the foundations of uh, the home where Joseph and Lucy Smith uh, first uh, lived," mm-hmm. and that didn't match with other things that you saw because there's a, a well-known image that George Edward Anderson had taken of what he labeled the Hiram Smith birthplace site. Right. Yeah, and you look at the mountains in the background, the setting, and that is not the same place. And so, we weren't really sure if uh, Larry Dahl had gotten the right spot or not, and we weren't sure what this other site was or how it related. And so, those were things that we were interested in, and and just the general story of the Smith family uh, as a whole. And so we were there and spent a few days and confirmed that this uh, site that Larry was uh, looking at was a, a very early site. Uh, the family uh, that lived there, Scott and Patricia Beavers, uh, two marvelous, marvelous people, uh, gave us permission to, to go on their property and to look at this site. And uh, so we learned enough that uh, we knew we wanted to come back and look at it carefully. And uh, we were able to get another research grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, archaeology is a very expensive effort. Could see that. Yeah. It takes a lot of time to do. And so we weren't quite sure how we were going to pull this off, but did lots of uh, meeting with people, phone calls and things, found some marvelous uh, friends now, uh, people that mm-hmm. we got to know. Yeah. Uh, Euclid Farnham, who is the was the the town historian for Tunbridge, uh, Vermont, uh, very helpful. Uh, Bob Dunkel, who owns an Airbnb there in town, and he let us uh, stay uh, for free 
mm -hmm. to support our, our research and a long list of others, volunteers who helped come and join in on the dig, a family that was on vacation, saw us down there working, stopped, and they spent their vacation helping us. It was <laughs> a fun experience. And, and lots of kids came because I, I, I wanted to do a, a feature article for a kid, uh, the, the Friend magazine uh, on, on this site. And so we trained them and they, they carried buckets for us. They didn't do any of the real digging, but helped a little bit just so that we could uh, kind of feature that. And so mm -hmm. uh, we gathered all of these people together yeah. um, and, and including many, many more I didn't mention. And um, we're able to, in a short period of time, excavate that site. Mm -hmm. And uh, just focused on the foundation, the inside of the foundation, and it was probably about six inches. It might have been a foot. I, uh, the, the book uh, gives the exact measurements, but it was right. just a little bit around the outside of the foundation as well. We didn't want to get out too far because we didn't have the time and the resources. We wanted to leave that for later archaeology. And we were hoping, mm -hmm. and I still hope, that what we've uncovered is compelling enough that it fosters additional research on this site so that more can be learned about the family. And um, definitely. So we, uh, we, we focused on uh, that site and, uh, and learned what we could. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. I think one of the striking things when you first start going through the book, you know, you always hit the acknowledgement. Sometimes recently, I think I've noticed a few, you know, monographs and other books where the acknowledgements will now be in the back. But most of the time, you know, you, you encounter the acknowledgements at the front. And a lot of the time, there's some sort of witty quip or some sort of turn of phrase or something like that that sort of starts off the acknowledgements. And, you know, there's there's always famous stories about some scholars saying, yeah, no, you know, if, if there are mistakes in here, then, you know, others should have told me, you know, <laughs> jokes like that. And yours um, is, is incredible because it really created a sense of community uh, for this book. You know, when you first get the... The book, it's kind of a lot like, you know, an archaeological report. It's a little bit smaller. It has, it's packed full of information. It has a lot of, you know, very, very helpful notes at the end. But the acknowledgments are actually acknowledgments. You know, you jump right in and you thank all of these different people. And it's just right from the beginning, it, it sort of sets the scene for the whole book. Yeah, we are very much indebted to a large group of people uh, for the work we were able to do. We couldn't have done it without each of those people. It's not like a research paper. You can say, well, you know, I thank this archives and this university and so on. And had one of them not come through, you probably wouldn't have a detail or, you know, an aspect of, of the project. But for ours, every player was essential in helping pull this together. Right. Yeah. Because, so let's see, I was curious too, when was the first time that you and Don went and visited those areas and started, you know, sort of garnering the relationships with some of the people there. It was the year before our, our primary research. I put the dates in there. You do. Uh, you do have them in there. Me yes. to remember some of <laughs> Maybe it around was, 2015. Uh, it might've been, might've been that. And I should remember because uh, my mother actually passed away while we were there the first time. And so I had to come home uh, two days oh, earlier. She's okay. been gone for five years. So yeah, that would okay. make, makes sense yeah okay yeah because i think if i'm remembering i i will be honest i do not remember the exact dates um but 
I, I remember 2016 showing up and I don't remember that, 2017. <laughs> that, that's a, well, and I should remember the exact dates, but I, it's been a, a while since I've done that. And as you know, anything like this, it takes a lot of time to right. pull together and get out. And so it's, yeah. Really well, and it, it's, I think what you're saying too is so clear when you read it because you were only there for a couple of weeks at a time um, or a week or so at a time. And you, you, dug right into the ground, you did what you needed to do. And then after that, what was the process like for both you and Don writing the, the book together? Well, it, uh, I wrote it all. Uh, Don uh, was my intellectual mentor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was there uh, with the dig and he knows so much about the family. It helped. Uh, but I did all of the primary research and tracking down, you know, what each of these artifacts meant and contacting a specialist. We had an osteologist who looked at our bones for free, um, mm-hmm. you know, to tell us what they were, the others that helped. And uh, so uh, Don uh, read it a few times along the way, gave some input um, and yeah. was uh, remarkable in terms of his intellectual capacity in helping kind of think it through. But I, I did the work on it. Okay, that makes sense. I was going to say it is written as it, you know, just in one voice. So it really comes uh, across that way. But you can tell that just decades of research are behind it at the same time. A lot of research beforehand, and then a lot afterward as we came back. Uh, you know, the, the, there's a photograph of the foundation mm-hmm. uh, that I came across afterwards. It would have helped us immensely beforehand. <laughs> Uh, it was it was taken in 1907, mm-hmm. uh, early I think June 1907, and it was it just told us so much and uh, things like that that we found afterwards. That, mm-hmm. um, so continue to do work on it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And I was curious too as I was reading through at certain points in the book, you refer to either the chapter or maybe the book as a whole as an article. Um, a few different times was it like was the earlier conception of it going to be more for a journal and did that yeah, sort of develop as you went absolutely yeah we be uh, i mentioned at the beginning uh, we're working on a larger book yeah. together mm-hmm. and wanted this available so we could cite it yeah this is a footnote <laughs> to mm-hmm. a larger project <laughs> yeah and so i contacted john whitmer a historical association and wanted to publish it in their journal mm-hmm. i sent him a copy of it and it just was too long uh, for the for the journal. Mm-hmm. And I've encountered that others and they end up cutting that way short. I've got another piece coming out soon that's about less than a quarter of what it was initially. But yeah. they were very gracious and saying, well, hey, why don't you turn this into a book? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just a short book, a little monograph on the, the Smith family in Tunbridge. Mm-hmm. And so... One thing led to another and worked with John Whitmer books on it and uh, published it uh, with them as a book. And, yeah, and so it was going to be just an article, uh, but I think it works great as a book, as a, a standalone piece. And uh, is more accessible, I think, to a wider audience that way, because not everybody gets the journal. Right. Yes. No, I'm actually very happy that it ended up going this way. And I wasn't sure that, you know, sometimes the terminology article um, book or those kind of chapter, sometimes those are sort of, you know, flexible. But yeah, no, I'm very happy to be able to have this on my shelf um, for one. And rather than just having it, yeah, in the journal or, you know, whatever else, because it is only 70 pages long. 
but it feels like it's a lot longer. Like there are pages where you might have five or six end notes. And I, I spent myself a half hour on each on that page, <laughs> going back, flipping through, slowly making it through the, the end notes. Like you have a, a couple of, of pretty long end notes too, that were really fun to sort of dig into, you know, kind of think about where all these different, you know, moving parts are at in the archives or sometimes in your own personal files. I thought that that was really fascinating too. The personal files, if any scholar or interested reader um, came across some of those sources, did they just reach out to you or those in the archives? At the uh, they can reach or? out to me. That, uh, a lot of it, uh, I've been trying to get put into the historic sites division. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has, we have a big uh, section of filing cabinets that we've kept over 50 years worth of work on our historic sites. Mm-hmm. And they're independent of anything else. <laughs> you know, they aren't a part of a, a library or an archives or anything. They're just our, our division mm-hmm. collection. And we've put uh, materials in there as well so that it's available primarily to people interested in historic sites and that, uh, but other scholars could get access to it as well. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Because, yeah, there were quite a few uh, end notes as I read where I was like, oh, that would actually be interesting to look uh, into that a little bit further. And yeah, they a lot of them were you know, in your possession. So I found that really fascinating. I'm curious too. So the book itself starts off and goes in sort of a chronological, uh, well, the whole thing goes in a chronological order. Um, starts off with Azale and Mary Duty Smith and how Azale uh, essentially first moves in and starts buying up lots and ends up buying up quite a few. I was kind of surprised by that. Um, actually, I didn't know um, really anything about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a whole little settlement uh, that comes to be known as Smith Settlement. Asel and Mary uh, start the settlement in, in the site that we actually ended up digging on. It's theirs before uh, Joseph and Lucy Smith move there. But then he moves off the site, he and uh, he, me and Asel and Mary, and then their sons uh, get property around them and are, are marrying and it expands uh, into a larger community. And yeah, that's all important to this story. It is. Yeah. And it's, it becomes Smith settlement because they're the first ones in, in the area. Uh, they are. There are some other people uh, on the property before there's a, a massacre. The British during the revolutionary war uh, send a whole, whole band of uh, native Americans down into that area to attack the settlers and they attacked uh, what is today South Royalton. It was Millville, at the, uh, Mill Village at the time, and killed a lot of people. Uh, one of their stations where the, the Native Americans uh, settled, or not settled the camp uh, before they go down, was on this property. And so it's got a history before the family settles there. And we try to address that as well mm-hmm. in the narrative. And then it has a, a history after they leave. We don't deal with that. Uh, just there wasn't time and space in what we were doing to do that. But we do, do deal with the before. Right. Yeah. Do you think that the, the Smiths or anyone in the area were a little bit nervous going in, knowing um, that background story? Absolutely. And uh, I think that that's why they were able to get the land at such a good price people weren't really interested in settling there at that point after the massacre this is uh, not many years later that um, they're coming in the land's not prime land wetlands 
call for a pollen study in this book. Right. I ended up doing that after, and I can yeah. comment on that later, but it yeah. kind of says some things about those wetlands. And so mm. uh, not really good land uh, to begin with, but the, so all of that plays into their getting the land for a, a good deal, but the massacre certainly was a major part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because, yeah, it seemed like Asel was able to just, you know, he purchased a, a, quite a few um, acres at the beginning, and then he just sort of kept purchasing um just yeah <laughs> just kept going Each of their sons, and that's a very it was part of their culture part of the setting that uh to marry you would um you needed to have a, a property and a, a, a proper home mm-hmm. for your bride to bring her in and he, they have a lot of sons that they're trying to get to that marriage in a stage i'm thinking in kirtland ohio for example uh, neil k whitney wants to marry ann smith he moves from Michigan to Ohio and works for five years to get a home for her to move in. You know, who would do that today? You know, wait five years for the house. <laughs> uh, you're going to move in with mom and dad in the basement, which is right. what Joseph and Lucy actually end up doing. They move in with Joseph's parents who are there for a year while they're building their home. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. so and then they're trying to get the rest of the property for the other sons to do the same thing. Yeah. It makes sense. And it, it just seems like, you know, the, the timing was right in the 1790s for that. It seems like it was a little bit better than, you know, 15 or so years later, um, as far as the economy was going. Uh, yeah. Yeah. At the, well, the whole economy right after the war, as part of the mm-hmm. war, Revolutionary War, the economy had collapsed everywhere, including here. Um, but it picks up not long after, which allowed them in theory, to pay off the property. They do some things, you know, mortgage it and end up losing it all. But yeah, it had it all uh, gone according to plan. They would have been all comfortable and had this whole little community of their own family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I found it really interesting too, trying to describe the types of homes that they built. It was almost like they would build these really small, you know, little the ones you describe, um, I can't remember his name, but the little boy walking into a, not one of the Smith huts, but someone else's and just, I think it was his older brother or something like that. And he just cries, just seeing. Yeah, Elijah place. Smith, but he's not a relative. Right. It's the same last name, but they're in the same uh, area. It comes in and a real tender story, but uh, John Smith, uh, Joseph Smith uh, Sr.'s younger brother gives almost the same account but not as dramatic with the crying part mm-hmm. but uh, he comes in their home is built well you know ready for the family and he but he sees it and he cries uh, keep in mind that most of these people down in new, well none of the people down in new england have seen a log home yet mm-hmm. so we tend to think of log homes as you know early early america that's what the pilgrims came in you know, Plymouth and built them. That's not what they built. It's not what the Puritans built in, uh, you know, Essex County where the Smith family settled. Uh, it's something that they get from uh, perhaps Scandinavia, perhaps Native American kind of combinations. And so this is a new thing for them to see these log homes and learn how to build them. And uh, so that's all part of this story as well. Right. Yeah. And I found that fascinating kind of, for me, at least with my training and, you know, the the things that I read and engage with in early American literature, thinking about Gilmore's um, Reading Becomes a Necessity of Life. I don't know if you're familiar um, with that book at all, but he describes how, you know, in the the region at the time, 
you know, in the, I think I'd have to look at exactly the years. I think he goes 1750 to 1830 or so, but his argument is in his title um, that in the area reading literally became a necessity of life because, you know, you were snowed in uh, for so much of the year that um, if you didn't have books and you didn't read, what else could you keep your mind occupied with, you know, maybe con- you know conversing with family or other things. But if you're just sort of in these little, these little houses, um, it becomes difficult. And so I kept kind of, kind of trying to, you know, take some of that and, you know, get the imagery because it's at one point, I think you described the early Smith home as possibly just having a hole in the roof for smoke to go out. They had no place to sit in there uh, when they first got in. And there's not enough room for everybody to lay flat on the floor, given the dimensions of the home, the number of people that are in there. So that confirms in our mind that they didn't have a a hearth, uh, just a hole in the roof. Uh, Probably uh, the next spring into the next summer, they had that built. And the bricks are really roughly made. You can tell that Joseph and his brother Jesse made those some fingerprints on them, you know, not fully fired. And, but um, yeah, so that first winter, uh, there was no room for anybody to, to read anything and no books. Uh, so they're spending their time outside working in the bitter cold. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that is how they spent their time the first, first little while, couple yeah. of years. Yeah. Uh, certainly the first winter by, by then they've been able to expand to the home and make it a little more comfortable. And after that, you know, and then put food away, they have a cellar mm-hmm. in the basement of the home that they expand. And, uh, so they can put food aside for the following winter and get, get themselves through a little easier. I'm sure they still didn't have much time for reading for, for some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, with all that work and just having having the little home, they probably spent a good chunk of that just trying to make the inside a little bit more comfortable if if, if they could, yeah. besides going out into the cold. I, yeah, it's just difficult, I think, for, for me at least to kind of imagine doing that and trying to sort of keep yourself occupied throughout that winter because it's also that, that the region is, is really intense in the winter, right? It is. At that time, not quite so bad as uh, later on by 1809, uh, there was some climate change. And, you know, 1815 is famous with uh, the volcanic eruptions, uh, the impact of that. But uh, so 1809 to 1815 is really bitter cold. Uh, but it's cold beforehand. Uh, just like, you know, today it's still cold in, in Vermont during the winter. <laughs> Difficult times for them. Yeah, definitely. We we could always talk about the uh, the cellar too. I found that really fascinating. The the objects that you found there, the way that you describe it as sort of also, I don't know if it's boosting the value of it necessarily, but just the, yeah, that expansion on the back of the home and how they were able to sort of dig. And th- was it covered, or am I remembering that wrong? Yeah, the cellar is underneath the home, yeah. the main home, and so. Uh, they've dug it out after there's an initial cellar. They dug down <laughs> deeper. And I can imagine that that was partly because the Smith family is so tall. You know, a really shallow cellar was not easy for them to access. <laughs> and, but what it, it left a ridge around the, the edge. Right. And uh, I was familiar with that same phenomenon of the John and Elsa Johnson home in Ohio where they used it to 
make cheese. It was where their cheese press was, and they used their their basement. Theirs was a rock-in basement, but uh, to make cheese. And so we, we assumed, uh, I assumed, you know, well, this is what they're doing here is making cheese, you know, a dairy. It's a dairy area now, lots of cows. Uh, Mary uh, Smith had lots of cows they brought up from uh, Essex County, uh, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, it made sense, but I think we've learned that maybe they were doing other things in there as well, but I think probably still cheese was a major effort for that cellar. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you found a few artifacts in the cellar? I uh, found some artifacts, a, a fork uh, that dates to uh, the 1760s time period, about the time that uh, Asel and Mary were married. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and that's usually when you got, uh, you know, your flatware uh, eating utensils. And so we're assuming uh, it was a wedding gift, but we don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but uh, they could have bought it, you know, at an auction somewhere. But so the, uh, that early piece, uh, lots of ceramic fragments, a few metallic items, um, and uh, bones. Yeah. You know, we found some uh, dinner bones. The bones were found outside of the foundation. They had been tossed out of the home and kind of knocked up against the foundation. Mm-hmm. And those bones were mainly or mostly from deer? Uh, they were. They were all from deer. All. Oh, okay. Three different deer, uh, which suggests, you know, that... Uh, that was a main element of their diet. Puritans actually had, um, they looked down on hunting kind of mm. activities and fish, fishing, fish they uh, disdained because that was a Catholic thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it seems kind of silly to us, but uh, they, they, they looked down on fish. They looked down on some kinds of, of food, uh, of hunting. But deer for Puritans was seen as luxury item. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, coming from England and the royal access to the deer hunting fields and so on, and so uh, this suggests that, um, in addition to the ceramics, that they were living in luxury, mm-hmm. and uh, which is one of the big surprises of our research. Uh, scholars have been saying increasingly more and more. Oh, Joseph Smith Senior was very poor, started out poor, mm-hmm. struggling financially. You know, just was not uh, a good economic manager, you know, on and on. Uh, But it turned out that the ceramics were of a a family living really comfortably. Mm -hmm. You know, high-end items, some of them were royalty-level items, you know, things imported from England. So some were local Vermont pieces, but a lot of it was not. And then the food... Uh, was high-end, you know, luxury items. And so mm-hmm. it suggests that the family was doing quite well. Right. Uh, you know, Asel, he's a selectman, uh, which, you know, New Englanders will know what that means. But for others, it's like the mayor of the mm-hmm. town. He was one of three individuals that helped run uh, Cambridge. Uh, a, you know, a prominent position. His son, Jesse, became selectman and <laughs> held other uh, political offices, you know, so they, they they are respectable people doing quite well for their area and their time. Even though it's a log home, uh, everybody has a log home, you know, until they get the sawmill in, in 1805, start doing that, starting expanding. So, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That does seem like a really big uh, transition in 
studies like uh, just in, in Mormon studies, like it usually is that the, the narrative of like, yeah, Joseph Smith senior had a little bit of money, but then the whole ginseng, you know, debacle um, really just threw everything out the window and, you know, um, whatever little bit of money he had before he had none after that. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a, a real insight, a, a yeah. different perspective, you know, and it puts the ginseng experience kind of in larger context. And that's a whole nother story, but, um, mm-hmm. but it, it helps to kind of set that up and what happens with the family. So. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's a really interesting moment in the book too, because you sort of bring up the ginseng story, but then you say, well, we'll tell that later. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's hard to yeah hard to separate all those. That's the the yeah. article I mentioned that was a really long one uh, mm-hmm. that's been cut way down. Uh, it's slated for publication next spring. Perfect. Um, and so uh, you know that's coming out that part of the story, and hopefully uh, people get to see that in detail too because that's really important. The whole story continues on in importance later on. Uh, there are some elements of that that'll. Uh, play into the whole New York story. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And I'm curious too, on this note about the Smith family actually having a little bit more money than than we would have assumed beforehand. Jesse is an interesting character in this story too, far more than I would have expected. Near the end of the book, you describe how you know, he starts to mortgage and there's just a lot like, uh, what chapter is that? I think chapter five, just a lot of selling and mortgaging and doing second mortgages. And um, so it's the selling Smith settlement. Oh, it's actually chapter seven. I was way off. And uh, Jesse seems to be in sort of in the middle um, of all of that. And I, I was kind of like, okay, there's, yeah, there's, you know, going with his, you know, father-in-law um, doing all these, you know, these different shifts with selling um, different, you know, parts, trying to raise money. And then just kind of out of nowhere, you know, he's allowed um, Azel uh, and uh, Mary to, you know, live on 20 acres, I think. And live in, is it in a Cooper, is it a Cooper shop? This is a Cooper shop on their, it's on the property. Farm, but yeah, he gives them 20, 20 acres of it and yeah. them live there. But there's controversy about that. Asel Mary feel like he's taking advantage of them, and he seems to think that he's being generous. But uh, yeah, it's hard to know how that actually played out. Yeah, and then Jesse sues them. Uh, he threatens to. Well, okay. no, Asel threat. Asel uh, people suggest he ought to sue Jesse, and then he decides okay. he ought to. But, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so I had that switch then. All right, interesting. Yeah, just that whole controversy um, as it as it came up was like, oh wow, I uh, <laughs> I did not expect um, to see that. And I guess it was Jesse was sort of waiting because um, he was, I guess, waiting for you know Azel to pass away, and then he'd just sort of take. He was going to let him live there, yeah, and then until yeah. he was gone, and then it would be his property. Yeah. One of the interesting things that I found in all this was how closely associated the Smiths were with very, very wealthy people. Uh, Jesse Smith, he marries into the Peabody family. This is the most important shipping family in America at the time. They practically own Salem, Massachusetts. You know, the Peabody Museum that's there, or I should say Peabody uh, for for those who are locals, but, um, you know, it is... uh, inherited it comes to their family or was created by their family and he's very much in, involved in that that's who he's getting his loans from 
but he has uh, relationships with John Jacob Astor mm-hmm. uh, up in Canada, which is part of his business. And that becomes important in the later ginseng story <laughs> because it turns out that's a big part of, of that story. And then uh, when the family moves to East Randolph, Joseph and Lucy, some of their neighbors who are shopkeepers uh, become the largest uh, importers of groceries and other things in the country. Um, so, you know, they moved to Chicago. And so, so these are big, influential, wealthy families that they're interacting with over time, which is, uh, we tend to think of them as backwoods, kind of yokels, um, mm-hmm. you know, isolated from the mainstream, and, and they were not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially living out where they did you know, um, living on the farm and all of that. Yeah. I think the assumption generally is that, yeah, they probably didn't know that many people is just whoever happened to live in their neighborhood or, you know, in the, in the area. Um, so it's, that's, yeah, it's another huge sort of, uh, insight from the book. And yeah, I, I think it's fascinating also the role that religion plays in this, because I guess generally the assumption has just been that, you know, uh, Azel was a universalist and the, you know, his having a seat at, was it a Baptist congregation? Uh, congregational, uh, it was a congregational. He, he owns a pew in the congregational church, right? Yes. But he's, uh, people have misinterpreted that over yes. time. Assuming yeah. that, that means he's a congregationalist. It was a union church. Mm-hmm. So the universalists were attending and owning pews as well as the congregationalists and the Baptists also. Um, That's where they, right. Were, were attending uh, there as well. But, but they were universalists before they ever arrived in Vermont and were very much involved in that. And I think, um, and I didn't say this in the book because I can't prove it, but I think that they're the ones that bring universalism to their community because they're so involved in it early. And it's just, um, mm-hmm. it, it appears in the area right when they, they come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of hint yeah, toward that. Speculations. <laughs> Um, and I think that's, that's also an important moment, not just for sort of the like development of religion in the area and the variety of different religious groups in the area, but also the role that, that he plays in bringing people together, because I guess there was some sort of agreement that he helped, um, with to, to make it so that that church would be more than just congregational. Uh, yeah, it, it looks like he uh, he was actually the selectman at the time, you know, in charge of the town. Yeah. Uh, when they decide, you know, people are protesting, well, we don't want to fund your church. But they decide, oh, this is a universalist church and everybody can go to it. And then he buys a pew in it, uh, clearly wanting to support this church effort, even though he's not a congregationalist or slash Presbyterian because they they become Presbyterian very quickly after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just far more networking and getting to know everybody in the area, bringing right. people together. Yeah. Yeah. So there is so much information that we don't have time to cover in this. Just all of the the digging and all of the different parts and the moving pieces. I was really fascinated as well with the amount of either our like archival manuscripts or even just you know published materials that I had never seen pop up before uh, in Mormon studies books and journals you know just letters from from Jesse or just you know references to them in a variety 
um, of different histories published maybe in the 1840s or the 1880s. Um, how was it tracking down all of those? Was that something that you had done, you and Don had done in the years leading up to this? or was this- uh, Some of it was done before and some after, but it's part of this larger looking at Vermont carefully. And uh, it helped kind of explain what we were finding in the archaeology. So we tried to pull all that together too. Yeah. I was sitting there, you know, just myself as, you know, a PhD student in an English program, kind of like, you know, I I wonder like what kind of tips you would give um, for finding some of those. You know, I usually use Google, I use HattieTrust, I use, you know, as many different, you know, databases as I can to try to find those kinds of things. But what was your process in in locating some of these? Boy, um, looking at anything published in Vermont, from that time period in that area, look, you know, it was a major effort of looking through a lot of stuff, uh, going to all the archives in the area and seeing what they had. Just look, it, it involved um, 95% chaff to find that 5% of weed. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of just filtering through things. Yes, yes. As 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 we do uh, with <laughs> with archival yeah. materials, but so that's that's a good point of entrance uh, entry though. So it's really kind of just looking at it and saying, okay, these are the dates that I want to look at, and I'm just going to find kind of anything that I can, either published or in the archives manuscripts from that that period. Sure, yeah. that was a, a major, uh, talking to people who mm-hmm. had, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned Euclid Farnham, the uh, township historian. Uh, mm-hmm. He didn't know any additional sources, but he knew so much about the town's history that he raised a lot of intriguing questions that then allowed us to go looking for it. Say, okay, that could be an issue. Let's look for that. And we were able to do that. Okay. Yeah. That's perfect. So that's another thing um, for historians and, you know, students of literature and just anything in the early Republic, go and make friends with the local historians. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's the one that mentioned, Oh, hops was the first cash crop in the area. And we had this issue of looking at the Smith property mm-hmm. and knowing uh, Lucy Mack Smith in her family memoir says that after they got married, that she and Joseph went to cultivating the land. And we spent some time in the book talking about how do you study land. And I shared a lot of details about how you go about doing that because I knew that that's not anything that any of our readers would have done before. And so I try to say, okay, what do you look for in the land to know how it was uh, used before? And that we could tell this had not been plowed a lot, maybe once or twice. And so if they're cultivating the land and not plowing it, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. And that's where we assumed that probably hops, uh, because that's the first cash crop in the area. It's brought up from Massachusetts Mm-hmm. Uh, they could be the ones that brought them up. Others, you know, they knew brought them up, but they knew how to grow that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was probably what they were growing there. And indeed, um, so I suggested in the, a footnote in the book, well, we really, you know, somebody needs to do a pollen study to confirm this hypothesis, but we think they were growing um, hops. And uh, so we got some funding. Yeah. Um, and we were able to have that study done, and indeed, we've we found pollen, uh, hops pollen in the little industrial building, the little factory that they had, mm-hmm. uh, which confirms that it was an oast. It was a uh, area used to, to dry hops as part of their work. That's perfect. Yeah. And is that the building that you described near the end of the book? The two stories. 
Yeah, there's a chapter we put on that, trying to figure out what that building was. Mm-hmm. We had not even planned on looking at that. Uh, Scott Beavers, the owner of the property, said, hey, you know, there's another foundation <laughs> over here. I noticed uh, just off in the trees, you know, trees had grown up around there. You, you wouldn't have even known it was there, but he... <laughs> Of course, it was his property. He'd been over it all very carefully, and so we, um, you know, had a couple of days where we designed a quick study where we were able to get the dimensions of the building mm-hmm. and establish then the foundation. Um, we had to actually uh, Scott and Patricia Beavers took the samples, the dirt samples for us because we already finished the archaeology, and so we gave them oh, careful cool. instructions: how do you do this? Mm-hmm. get to the floor level, <laughs> describe what that would look like. And they, they got those and uh, uh, sent those. And that's how we were able to get that study done. Yeah. Community again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, this, this study was done by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's great. And for that building too, uh, none of it is still standing, I assume, just like the house. Right, that building yeah. was gone soon after the Smiths left. Actually, the house was probably gone soon after they left, uh, as you know, based on the evidence we found. But uh, yeah. and so it uh, was very, uh, very protected, you know, and grown up. Uh, the grass had grown up over it and it covered it, and mm-hmm. uh, but it was just the foundation. Yeah. And I bet, as you know, an archaeologist, that was kind of like you know, striking gold uh, in a way. Because, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of, of artifacts that I think some of the people involved had found little bits and pieces of things here and there out of context. But as far as, you know, digging into um, the foundation of the home, you know, going through everything, finding the fork, finding the ceramics, all of that is in context. And, you know, you're working directly with that as an archaeologist. So context is essential if you don't have context you can't make any sense of it and so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think that's that's incredible you know to to be able to have that because you know most of the time like in mormon studies we don't really have something like this you know an archaeological report that really has like a little time capsule in the dirt and you're able to report on it your your report is authoritative now moving forward you know, for anyone who wants to engage um, directly, you know, with the actual Tunbridge farm, this is where we'll be turning to understand, you know, exactly what was there um, and what the family was doing. Most historians have just ignored the archaeological context. We're hoping to change that. As a matter of fact, John Whitmer Books now has a whole series coming out on archaeology of these sites because there's been a lot done. Mm-hmm. Over time, um, different scholars that have done that work are going to pull that together. And I'm mm-hmm. excited to see what comes of all this. That'll be amazing um, to see that. And it, particularly this, you know, you you get a sense of, okay, I'm going to keep this on my shelf for decades. <laughs> and I'm going to be turning to this a lot in the coming years. But then at the same time, it's not finished. It's not a finished project um, or in a way product either, because you're already adding to it, even though it was just barely <laughs> released. You've done um, the new pollen study that you mentioned in the book. So, you know, you um, are still you know adding to it as you go. And I'm really excited to see the larger project, um, the small, you know, essays or maybe I, I, maybe not any any more little books like this. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, really excited to see. Yeah, we'll else. see what develops of that, but probably not any more books, but uh, maybe. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, that'll be great. 
And um, yeah, I just really appreciate this, this kind of work. I'm really, you know, I'm grateful to have been able to, to chat with you today and um, to go over, you know, all of these details. It's, it's really fantastic to see this kind of new, and it really, in a way, a new chapter in Mormon studies, because if we're really returning to this kind of, of material artifacts, right? The, the, like the material culture and like really digging into um, that kind of, of um, information, you get more of the context. You get more of um, what the real lived experience was for the families. And uh, this is, you know, wonderful, not only in Mormon studies, but it's also going to help, I think, um, tremendously in early American um, studies having this kind of, you know, archaeological work. I was also really excited as I read um, through the, the book and saw the end notes, all of these more like recent um, archaeological studies on like New England and, you know, other things like that. So opening sort of this totally new world in a way to, to Mormon studies scholars, I think is fantastic. Good, good. I hope it does. Yeah, great. But was there anything else that uh, you wanted to discuss about the book or your future work that... Um, I'll just share one real quick story. Yeah. Um, that uh, we, as we were doing our work, uh, there was a, a land developer who had bought a lot of the property up, uh, out in that area, and, and the whole town was uh, was really upset by that, and it made people really skittish. Uh, we were interested in the Asel and Mary Smith property that they had moved to, and so. We'd gone up there and talked to the woman who, who lived there, uh, but we were trying to figure out uh, from an, a, a 1797 survey of the land that had begun at Asa and Mary Smith's home so we could confirm that we were at the right spot. We were around doing, we had a 100-foot tape measure and trying to reconstruct that, and it was making people nervous. <laughs> and so... Uh, this woman, her grandson was over visiting and he came out with a gun. I, I'd like to say a shotgun, but I didn't look close. But <laughs> he actually, he came out with a gun. Oh, no. Well, we were up kind of on the edge of the property and he ran us off uh -huh. with that to stay away from their land. Uh -huh. um, and it's understandable that they were a bit right. nervous about this developer and what's going on. And yeah. so, so that was, uh, an interesting uh, part of the study that we hadn't anticipated. Yeah. Final night of our uh, time there, we had a little bit of time and we went, there was another family up across the road uh, living in a, a trailer home up there. And I knocked on the door and there's this famous picture I mentioned at the beginning that George Edward Anderson took in 1907, where he says Hiram Smith was yeah. born here. And we've been trying and trying, asking everybody around the area, where is this place? Um, because he, you know, somehow he missed it. Yeah. And um, as I was there, the sun was going down, and um, on his doorstep, I showed him the picture, and he said, well, I don't really know where that is. And then he kind of the light dawned on him. And he said, oh, it's right there. And he pointed over our shoulder, and we turned around. <laughs> And looked out, and you could see <laughs> that that home where the young man had run us off with the gun was the same place that's featured in the photograph. And there was the family property. And so George Edward Anderson had photographed Asel and Mary Smith's property. And mm -hmm. um, when we were able to figure that out, that gave uh, an illustration of the homestead and the the Cooper shop where they were living. Um, 
uh, an additional part of the story that we had not even thought we'd be able to tell. Yeah. We were able to tell, you know, that last night because of that fortuitous question <laughs> that we had asked <laughs> asked that last person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sort of the two experiences coming together too, being run off and <laughs> yeah, and, and that, yeah, now that it was more important than we had even thought. Yeah, and I I love that. Like, um, so the cover of the book includes that image, it does. and that image itself is actually the the home that Isael built. That is, yep. That yeah. image, the cover of the book, is the Isael Mary's property. This the whole Smith family property, mm-hmm. and where. Silas, their son, when he got married, lived in in the Cooper shop. We don't go through all those parts of the story in in the yeah. book, but that's all. It's a it's a major part of the Smith family story. Mm-hmm. And so, it that that home lasted well over a hundred years, and it might have, you know, after um, George took that photo in nineteen oh eight, nineteen oh seven, it probably only lasted a little while longer. It's not still there, I assume. Uh, it burned down in the nineteen sixties. Okay. Uh, so it lasted clear up until then, and then it was rebuilt on the original foundations. And so that's why being able to talk to that uh, woman uh, that lived there before she passed away was really helpful because she could tell us about her memories of the childhood in the home. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so it's gone now, except for the foundation, but um, it lasted for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's immense, um, actually, to to think that it. You know, from I guess the 1790s all the way up until uh, the 1960s for that home, or uh, yeah, 1797 up until uh, the 1960s. So it's yeah. used for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, Joseph Seniors probably only lasted a couple of decades, or if that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was much more roughly built, mm-hmm. um, but it would have been 1791 up until uh, probably. You know, by 1810 or so, it's gone. Okay. That's, it's always interesting how some things can, you know, they seem like they just continue to last and, and others just disappear into the into the grass, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Joseph Sr.'s burned as well. You mentioned the two-inch layer of, of ash. and Burned down probably intentionally. The family that bought it after them, probably, you know, they didn't want their cattle breaking their legs in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the family was moving and leaving behind better homes and, he just cleaned it. He set it to fire, burned it down, and you know nobody occupied it after that. Yeah. So I also, you know, find it really interesting. In the end, there's you know the switch from sort of this archaeological, you know, report to the last what would that be 10, 10 15 pages or so. It's kind of more of a close reading of uh, Lucy's history. There's quite the the abrupt switch, and it's actually a, kind of fun to go from you know more of the like the report. To then, okay, let's actually talk about you know Lucy's religious experience there, how it was with her family, and the death of her two sisters. It, yeah, it is an abrupt switch, and yeah. kind of abrupt because we focus on the the home and the homestead earlier, but it's an attempt to apply that. Yeah. To say, okay, now we know this story uh, that Lucy tells us. Anybody that's read her memoir knows you know the, the outline of that story, but she's talking about this this grove of trees and this brook and this field and everything. And they're right there. Right. Uh, she, she's talking about her land and her property. And it wasn't until we did that careful landscape study that we were able to say that this is all here. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. So it's a close reading of of her um, of her memoir, um, but then also applying it to the landscape. So I love that how it comes in in archaeology and landscape study. Um, it's all there. So yeah, I'm really excited about this uh, this book and you know your your future projects. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's been great. Yeah, you've been very gracious with your time. We really appreciate it. Um, so once again. Uh, We'd like to thank Mark Staker uh, for joining us today and lending um, his voice and expertise to the ever-growing field of restoration studies. You can find uh, him, let's see, actually, we should probably keep some notes on that. Like, how would people reach out to you just through email or do you have social media? that They're welcome to email me. I I don't have a web page or anything. Just you can find me on Facebook, but uh, you can also email me. it's called, uh, I, I have a, a Gmail account under revised edition, mm-hmm. but it's spelled a little bit differently. It's revised edition, A-D-D-I-T-I-O-N, nice. T-O-O. Okay. So, so but you're welcome to email me there as well. Okay. We'll, we'll see if we can add that into the show notes. But yeah, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to you know, engaging with you more um, in the future. Well, thank you for having me. Love to talk to you again. Thank you for tuning into the Whitmercast. This podcast is produced with the help of Bryce Blankenagel, Catherine Pollock, Jill Brim, Joe Geisner, Catherine Hill, and Rachel Killebrew. John Whitmer Historical Association is an educational nonprofit institution with Kristen McKay as our president. For more information, visit jwha.info, where you can meet our team and join the association, read past issues of the JWHA Journal, and get updates on upcoming conferences and events. Our theme music is I Love to Tell the Story, composed by Tom Moraine. This podcast is a production of the John Whitmer Historical Association, copyright October 2021, all rights reserved.